0: This is Where We Live. I'm John Denkowski. Coming up, Senator Richard Blumenthal is dismayed about Republican efforts to keep the president from seating a new Supreme Court justice. And we'll also remember a man who fought for justice and civil rights. But first, NPR and Kaiser Health News are taking a comprehensive look at opioids, starting with a series of stories on the effects of the drugs on babies born to mothers dealing with addiction, uh, today, we're going to hear from our reporter on that team. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Jeff Cohen joins us. He's a reporter for WNPR who covers health news for NPR and Kaiser Health. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. Good morning, John. So tell us a bit about the series and what you and your partners are doing here.
1: Sure. Well, we've got a, a series of stories in the pipeline from a variety of states, five states across the country. And the stories all focus on the idea that infant children of women who are using opiates, maybe it's heroin, maybe it's uh, methadone, so they focus on those infants. And so as an example, my colleague Sarah Jane Tribble uh, of uh, WCPN IdeaStream in Cleveland, she's speaking with a mother, uh, 25-year-old Amanda Hensley, uh, and she's taken opioids for years. And what she found out was when she was pregnant with a baby girl, she was using Percocet, morphine, fentanyl, and heroin, uh, and she would use the heroin when she was short on cash. So it was either, you know, I was puking from morning sickness or I was puking from being high. I mean, which was kind of, that's kind of how I was able to hide it for a while. And so John, this is a, our, our, one of our entries into these stories, which is how do mothers dealing, uh, with addiction, pregnant mothers dealing with addiction, uh, deal with their addiction as they're pregnant. But also, what effect does it have on the baby, and what effect does it have on their family? So her drug use caused the obvious concern of the baby's unborn uh, the unborn baby's father, Ty- Tyrell Shepard. If you don't care about yourself, have enough common decency to care about the baby you're carrying. Like, be an adult, own up to what it is you're doing, and take care of business. Like, regardless to how bad you're going to feel... There's a baby who didn't ask to be there.
0: And, Jeff, this is, this is important because as we hear about this heroin and opiate epidemic across the United States, obviously this is going to affect many, many women who are pregnant with children. Mm. And here, through those last two pieces of tape, you're hearing some of the stories that really show the concern people have for this. A, a lot of times people will just say, Mom, you've got to stop no matter what if you are carrying around a baby.
1: Right, and uh, a lot of what we see, and we'll get to this in a bit, but a lot of what happens when it comes to uh, helping people dealing with addiction has to do with stigma and mindset. Um, so you hear it from parents, you hear it from nurses, you hear it from doctors, you hear it from colleagues. People get frustrated very often with a person living with addiction, but what you hear more and more now, especially with opiate use is is that feeling of we need to be treating opiate use and opiate addiction like a disease. Not like, and this is what you hear a lot. Not like a moral failure. So uh, that's something uh, we've heard a lot. Now, in, in Amanda's case, eventually on, uh, and once when she, when she was on the heroin substitute methadone. She gave birth to her daughter Valencia. Then it was time for Valencia to go through withdrawal, but because, like her mother, like her body was dependent on the opioids inside of it, it took a time for that to actually. And happen. this is
0: something that's happening more increasingly, right? We've got babies who are being born born addicted to methadone or or some other opioid.
1: Advocates would say we we should technically say they're born dependent, mm-hmm. meaning addiction uh, is the condition of the mother, which is both a biological dependency as well as an as a as a. Um, uh not emotional but a psychological addiction mm-hmm. the baby is dependent upon the drugs inside of its system it takes some time to wean the baby off of those drugs uh and what you do is essentially it's you know it's it's i hate to say it's a little bit of the hair of the dog right you get you give baby liquid morphine mm. over time to stabilize baby so baby can get gain control nurse with focus uh and not have tremors and not have you know shaking and all that kind of stuff so um, uh, eventually, uh, Valencia, Amanda's daughter, needed about five or seven days in the hospital uh, to come through that withdrawal. And the hospital Valencia was in gave Amanda's – gave her mother, Amanda, a room to stay in. Mm. The idea being that hospitals can be – you know, NICUs, intensive care units for babies can be bright. They can be loud. They can be sort of intense and not exactly the greatest place to, to be alone if you're an infant going through withdrawal. Um, so we decided to take a closer look at that idea, which is: what if what are hospitals doing to handle moms like this? Typically, a mom is discharged a couple of days after after a baby is born, um, but a baby born dependent on opiates might have to stay in the hospital for weeks. So, in Connecticut, the Hospital of Central Connecticut, which is in New Britain, is asking the question: Can we shorten withdrawal times and lessen the symptoms of withdrawal if we keep mom in the hospital essentially as a like a border? Um, and that's that's to say, what if what if we give mom and baby a place to stay until baby is better? So I spoke with uh, a physician, Dr. Anne-Marie Goliotto. She's the chief of pediatrics uh, and the head of the hospital's nursery.
2: So we've had to figure out how we can use our rooms differently, how we can use our space differently, and how we can partner with mom differently to have that relationship with her to say, you know, we expect you to stay here with your baby and take care of the baby, you know, after you've been discharged.
0: So of course there's there's a cost implication, but it also sounds mostly Jeff like we're talking about a, a
1: culture shift here. Huge, huge, right? So on the cost side, the hospitals actually say if we can shorten withdrawal times, we will reduce cost. All for the good, okay? Um, but they so at, at this NICU they've got three rooms right outside of the intent the neonatal intensive care unit that can be monitored rooms for the baby. They can with they can shorten withdrawal times uh, and they can make a, a better experience for both mom and baby. But it takes a culture shift. It takes moms. Uh, who might otherwise have been discharged and gone about their lives coming into visiting the baby in a NICU takes a more current a more consistent presence f- from mom, but it also meant a new dynamic when it comes to caring for these moms and treating them as moms and not as as addicts so I spoke with carolyn rossi she 's a nurse who I met who who works at the hospital and she worked there for twenty seven years
3: We looked at it like they are
0: drug addicts, and the baby is born a drug addict and you know, we're trying to protect the baby from their mother, basically, like we were going to cure the baby
3: but not cure the mother and the family. So it was it was a lot about taking babies away from
1: moms.
0: We're talking with Jeff Cohen, uh, who's our reporter, who works for NPR and Kaiser Health News. They're doing a, a new series, a comprehensive look at opioids, starting with a series of stories on the effects of the drugs on babies born to mothers dealing with addiction. He's been telling us about a story that he's working on right now. And in this this hospital, Hospital for Central Connecticut is doing what seems like an unusual thing, something that is part of a big culture shift. How unusual is this program, Jeff? Is this something that's all over the country? Is this just happening right here in Connecticut?
1: So I have a a window into Connecticut. I'm not sure how widespread it is. I know there is a lot of research that says that if we treat moms uh, and if we give mom the ability to room in with her baby, it's better for both mom and baby in the long term. Um, But but back to your point, John, about the culture change, it is a really big culture change for nurses. And as a reporter, very often you come across people who – are stubborn in their, in their ways. And in this case, it was refreshing to speak with people who said, look, we've been doing this for decades. Individually, I've been a nurse for 27 years, Carolyn Rossi said, and a physician uh, has been physician for a couple decades or more. And, and the idea is we try and do what's best, but maybe we don't always do what's best. And maybe our prior practice, which, which involved being fiercely protective of the infant, uh, which meant at, in, in this older mindset, pushing mom away. Right. Uh, because mom in this old mind frame, mom was a threat.
0: Well, it's what we heard from from the the father of the baby from, exactly. from Cleveland before. It's that it's that mom's the problem. Mom is an addict. Mom shouldn't. She's not responsible. She shouldn't be giving birth to someone who's going to be addicted to opioids. This really is a culture shift. And it it seems like it's going to have a good result for both mommy and baby.
1: That's right. And the hospital of central Connecticut is doubling down. They're, they're putting their nurses through a training program. That, that involves a pretest and a post-test and, and talking in education about attitudes when it comes to the attitudes surrounding addiction. Um, and, uh, and that's the bigger change. And, and Rossi, who I spoke with, Nurse Rossi, said uh, it's, it is a huge culture change, but it's one that's worked out. Uh, she said she only had to see it work once for, it, for her to be convinced. And she told me about a time that she gave a young mother a room to stay in. This was back in December. Um, and her baby had to stay in intensive care for over a month.
0: She was just thrilled, and she wasn't here twenty four seven. She couldn't be here twenty four seven. She was here as much as she could, and just knowing that she had that flexibility for me helped helped me understand that she is a mom.
3: She's a great mom. She wants to be a better mom.
1: So, I think I think what we hear there is, you know, someone who's been doing her practice uh, for twenty seven years as, a, as an intensive care nurse in the neonatal. Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, saying, look, um, I'm changing. I have to think about how I do my work. I have to think about how I care for baby. And maybe maybe my attitude was entirely right. I came to it for all the right reasons. But what we were doing as a culture of nursing, maybe it's a culture in a hospital, wasn't getting necessarily the best outcome for the baby or for the mom. And so that's kind of it. That, that's where this story is going. Uh, it's, it's been really fascinating to report and be a part of.
0: And this is part of a big series that you're doing with NPR and Kaiser Health News. I guess I'm wondering in the last couple minutes that we have, if you can just talk through what else you and the other reporters that you're working with on this and the editors are learning about this opioid crisis. We've been tackling this from a number of different angles. Our reporter, Patrick Scahill, is working on something that we're going to be talking about on where we live in another week or so. There are so many pieces to this puzzle that is happening all across the country and certainly right here in Connecticut. What are some of the things you're taking away from how we're combating this this opioid epi- epidemic?
1: So, and now you're testing me. At the moment, uh, we're, we are focusing as a group on newborns and the effect on newborns. And our attention is squarely there. This is that story. There are, th- there, is this, uh, there are stories about neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is NAS, which is this idea of what a baby goes through during withdrawal. And it's really frightening to hear um, j- just the effects of an opiate on a on a newborn and when you're in the NICU and you're surrounded by all these babies some are there some babies are there because they've got birth defects some babies are there because they're born too small some babies are there because they are going through and I mean this might this is I'm going to probably get complaints for saying it but sort of like an opiate hangover they got to fight through weeks of coming off of drugs Mm. um it, and so as a, as a reporter, for me personally, I'm not entirely aware of all of those stories that are going on, but I will say as a reporter, it's eye-opening just to see that process work. And, um, uh, you, you know, really, one person's drug use is not one person's drug use. You, it affects, it affects uh, an unborn baby. It affects a, a father. Um, but I think treating what we're hearing from these nurses, treating mothers, like we said, as uh, – People with an illness, people with a disease, is a different approach that, is, that may have uh, some benefits.
0: What's interesting, though, too, is a lot of the work that you've done on this Kaiser Health News series has been about the big changes to health care that have been brought on by so-called Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And there have been so many changes to the way health care is delivered, the way it's paid for, and some cultural shifts along the way. But it seemed, what's interesting is this story and many others that I've heard recently around how we're dealing with addiction seem to be pointing to more substantial cultural shifts that have nothing to do with how we're paying for anything or anything mm-hmm. else. It just
1: has to do with a culture change. Entirely, because I went in there thinking I'm telling a story about a hospital that's changing its systems. I was not going in to tell a story about nursing culture change. I was going in to say, all right, tell me where you're going to put mom, what room is she going to be in, how you going to monitor it, how you're going to make sure baby's safe. And that was all fine and good, but what I heard was that's the easy part. We can make that change. We can make the systemic change. The harder part is a cultural change. And that's, that was the more compelling story, and that's what you hear on NPR.
0: Uh, look for more of Jeff's reporting with NPR and Kaiser Health News on this story and others. And, of course, we're going to continue to cover the opioid epidemic on where we live. Jeff, always good to talk with you. Thanks for being here. You're welcome, John. Coming up next, uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal is dismayed, to put it mildly, about Republican efforts to keep the president from seating a new Supreme Court justice. We'll hear from the senator coming up next, where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. The death of Associate Justice Antonin Scalia has spurred a bitter clash over who should select the next Supreme Court nominee. Senator Richard Blumenthal is a member of the Judiciary Committee, which should be considering a nominee put forward by the president. But the head of that committee, Republican Chuck Grassley, has been back and forth over whether the committee will consider any nominee or whether Republicans would simply wait for a full year until the next president takes office. This could mean a year of an eight-member court, with Swing Justice Anthony Kennedy holding even more sway. This week came news that Senator Grassley would finally schedule a meeting with President Obama. For his part, Senator Blumenthal wrote an op-ed in which he said, Senate Republicans are aggravating the absurd and abhorrent paralysis and gridlock that the American people rightly detest. Senator Richard Blumenthal joined us by phone yesterday from Washington. Welcome back to where we live.
3: Great to be with you.
0: First of all, I'd just like to get your thoughts on where we stand right now in this process. As a member of the Judiciary Committee, it should be your task to be hearing from the president soon about the potential for nominations for the Supreme Court. But as we understand from your Republican colleagues, there is not going to be a process, at least right now, in terms of picking a new justice. I guess I'm wondering your thoughts right now in the process so soon after the death of Justice Scalia.
3: As a member of the Judiciary Committee, I am astonished and appalled by the apparent intransigence of the Republican leadership in the face of the clear constitutional obligation and the need to fill this vacancy, not only as a member of the Judiciary Committee, but as a former law clerk to United States Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackmun as the 20-year Attorney General of Connecticut. Uh, I argued cases before the Supreme Court, four of them, including before Justice Scalia. And clearly, I know personally firsthand how important every member of the Supreme Court is to the decisions and deliberations of the court. And let me quote Justice Scalia himself about the need for a full complement of justices. I happened to come across this quote from 2004 when he was responding to a request that he recuse himself, in other words, take himself out of a case. And he responded that unlike the appeals court where he had served, he wouldn't be replaced if he recused himself. And he said, and I'm quoting, The court proceeds with eight justices raising the possibility that by reason of a tie vote it will find itself unable to resolve the significant legal issue presented by the case. And then he referenced the court's own recusal policy, and he said, quote, even one unnecessary recusal impairs the functioning of the court. That was Justice Scalia in 2004, and now the Republicans are saying – we're going to leave this seat empty for well over a year, well into 2007. I am just really, uh, frankly, not only regretful, but aghast that we could have a court without nine justices for well over a year and well into 2007. And I hope the Republicans will relent in response to the overwhelming outcry and outrage in the public. But There's no indication right now that they will.
0: Because you are obviously much closer to the situation than most Connecticut residents, uh, your constituents. I'm wondering if you can talk about the conversations that you've had with your colleagues. I mean, we we hear uh, Chuck Grassley talk about this or we hear Mitch McConnell talk about this from the Republican side. Are you talking with any of your Republican colleagues, say, on the Judiciary Committee about their intransigence, Mm -hmm. as you call it? And what are they saying to you? What are you saying back?
3: What they're saying to me is that they want the next president to have the opportunity to appoint the new justice and that there is precedent for holding the seat open. In fact, there is none. And we've had conversations back and forth. As Ronald Reagan once said, facts are stubborn things. And reminding of the facts may ultimately sway them. But more Powerful, I think in the long run will be voices of their constituents, faces of litigants who are denied justice because the court is not ruling. And the court this term, this year, has highly significant issues before it, voting rights and reproductive rights, affirmative action and immigration policy, to name a few. And my hope is they'll be swayed by public outrage and outcry.
0: Of course, the court may, may indeed, in the absence of a ninth justice, hear some of these important cases. One thing I would think that might sway them is if because there is a swing vote on the court that occasionally goes with the conservative side and occasionally goes with the more liberal side, that if they, they lose a few of these important cases, I would assume that might sway them in some way. What
3: most concerns me just to take the calculation you've just presented, is that the court is going to be dragged into this morass of partisan bickering and game-blaming and game-playing politically that it should be above. The Supreme Court of the United States has no armies, no police force. It carries the day and convincingly, sways the political authorities in this government because it's above politics. And here we have it dragged into the morass of partisanship, the kind of calculation that you've just presented. Would conservatives prefer to have the next president do the picking because the outcome is likely to be more beneficial to their cause? We should have a candidate of impeccable integrity and intellect, someone so well qualified that there is no partisanship or political argument. about, And that's the way traditionally it has operated. Think back to most of the present members of the court. They have been approved within, all of them, within 100 days of their nomination, at least in the last 30 years. The longest time it took anyone to be confirmed was 99 days. That was Clarence Thomas. And we're talking about 300 plus days that this president has left in his term, which is more than enough time to confirm a new justice. And I really still hope, I may sound naive, but I still hope that we can achieve a bipartisan, non-political process here.
0: And we're talking with Senator Richard Blumenthal, who of course sits in the Judiciary Committee, uh, hopeful that he will be able to um, take a look at some nominees uh, from or at least one nominee from uh, from the president of the United States before his his term is up. Um, you've not taken part in this process yet. I, I believe that uh, both Justices Sotomayor and Kagan were already serving on the bench by the time you, you took a seat. Do you what can you tell us about how this process is supposed to work? If we were in a better situation where the president was not getting these stonewalling tactics from from the Republicans, what would this look like right now for for you and your colleagues?
3: Here's the way it should work, John the president nominates someone, we do a screening, a review, an investigation. We rely on the FBI report in part, but we can also do our own investigatory work. Then there's a hearing, and each of us who are members of the Judiciary Committee is given the opportunity to ask questions, and virtually unlimited questions. Even though we may have a five-minute round each, we can have a second and third round, and That hearing can go for a day or longer, and that nominee is put on the stand, literally, to answer those penetrating, searching questions. No rubber stamp. And by the way, I personally will be one of the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee asking the toughest questions. There should be no free pass for any nominee, no matter how qualified she or he seems to be on the surface and I will be asking penetrating tough questions both in the public and privately and then there should be a vote assuming that the Judiciary Committee approves the nominee that's the next step there should be a vote on the floor of the Senate members of the Judiciary Committee but also others should be given the opportunity on the floor of the Senate to state why they're voting yay or nay on that nominee no guarantee that the nominee will receive the votes necessary to be approved But at least the process should go forward. And that's what would happen normally, traditionally, historically, what has happened for the last decades in the republic so far as we know going back. And I think that's the process we ought to follow now. You
0: you talk about the start of the process being the president nominating someone, although I would would assume that somebody from the administration or the president himself – is coming to key members of the Judiciary Committee or key members of the Republican and Democratic Party and saying, here's someone that I'm looking at. Can, can you talk about that? Have you been approached by anybody from the administration about any of the candidates that we've heard he is perhaps vetting? Are you um, in any way contacted by the administration before any nomination takes place?
3: I have not been contacted, nor do I think it's necessary. I think the president should make his independent judgment about who he is going to nominate, And that's his constitutional duty. Frankly, our constitutional duty is to advise and consent. To say, as the Republican leadership has done, that we are not even going to consider a nominee is an abrogation and rejection of our job, our constitutional job, our duty under the law. I think it is a violation of the Constitution to say we're not going to advise and consent. And frankly, the Republican leadership is saying – We're not even going to do our job, so our message to them is let's do our job. But the president's job is to nominate. If he comes to us and asks our opinion, uh, frankly, if he came to me or any staff in the White House, I would say my job is to consider that nominee through the Judiciary Committee and the reports that will be presented. I'm not going to give you a commitment as to how I'm going to vote because we have to consider all of the evidence before us and the testimony of that nominee.
0: So as you go through that process personally, to tell me about what you see as the main questions you'd be asking and and how you would take into consideration all of what a potential jurist would would need to, uh, to do for you. For instance, I know that we always get tied up whenever it's time to nominate uh, a, a candidate for the Supreme Court in something that we refer to as a litmus test, right? There are certain things that either Democrats or Republicans will not stomach. So I guess I'm wondering for you, is there anything key that you're looking for in a judge that would say to you, yes, this is going to be something that a man or a woman needs to have in order for them to get the the Dick Blumenthal stamp of approval?
3: Let me talk about the personal qualities that I think are most important and the questions directed at those qualities that I think are critical. First, keep in mind that whoever is appointed and ultimately confirmed will serve for life. We're not talking about a term of two years like a congressman, six years like a senator, four years like a governor. We're talking about a lifetime appointment, which is true in all of the judicial appointees, which is why I take them so seriously. And we're talking now about the scrutiny given to an appointee to the nation's highest court which demands an extra level of care and caution and scrutiny. And having served as a law clerk to a United States Supreme Court justice, I'd really wanna know what the level of scholarship and intellectual energy is. Number one, what are the gifts of mind and intellect that the person has? Second, personal integrity, extraordinarily important. If there are any blemishes, any issues as to personal integrity in that person's background, I would question strongly about them. Third, and this is a more difficult area, what is the capacity for growth? You know, justices evolve as people. We all do. The capacity to grow into the job is supremely important, in my view, because the demands are so huge and pressing and demanding. Uh, and, and I'll just give you a, an example. Uh, justice Blackman, after 10, 15 years on the court, was a very different justice than when he began, a much better justice. The other great justices on the Supreme Court similarly have grown in the job. Uh, justice Black, Justice Brennan, uh, Justice Warren, Chief Justice Warren, all began their jobs as much more limited human beings and justices than during the time that they served ultimately. And as a result, they participated in great and historic Supreme Court decisions, whether it's Brown versus Board of Education or some other decision. But
0: that's what's so interesting to me, Senator, is that, again, we, we have these political conversations about nominating someone who has maybe a particular political point of view right now. But as we've even seen in this most recent court, there are many strict conservatives who've blamed the Roberts Court for allowing the Supreme Court to do things vis-a-vis gay marriage that they never would have expected. And I guess the point is that you have seen firsthand people on the Supreme Court who have shifted over time, who, who maybe feel, think, react to the world around them differently than they did when they first took the bench, And that's that's really who we're hiring for the job, right? We're not hiring the person who fits a certain um, profile in 2016. So the Republicans and Democrats can have a political conversation. But we're really talking about someone who's going to be substantially different and living in a different world in
3: 2030. We can't predict all the issues that are going to come before the court. The ACA could not have been predicted 10 years ago, nor could necessarily marriage equality. Or even the challenge that we now see to Roe v. Wade, which was regarded as settled law. Now there's a case before the Supreme Court that would effectively, in many practical terms, greatly constrict the rights that we thought were guaranteed under Roe v. Wade to women in their reproductive lives over their own bodies and their futures and their lives and livelihoods. So these issues that come before the court are unpredictable in many respects, and therefore we're picking someone with the intellect and integrity and capacity for personal growth and empathy and understanding the world, those kinds of qualities uh, can't necessarily be quantified or measured in a very quantitative way. They have to be, in a sense, taken in the person as a whole. And that's what we have to do in judging.
0: But, but of course, you know, one thing that people will ask is, as you sit down as a senator and you consider uh, these things and the intellect, the ability for personal growth, you, you may very well look at someone who has many of the attributes that you want, but maybe has, in your mind, a mixed judicial record on something like abortion rights, or a mixed judicial record on something like personal privacy, two things that I know that you feel very strongly about. How much would you weigh the, that problem with, or in your mind, potentially a problem, with someone who could fulfill all of these other things that would make a great Supreme Court justice, but maybe right now could be politically very difficult or
3: unpalatable to you? I am going to judge whoever the president nominates by her or his qualifications, by the overall record. There are issues that concern me deeply and gravely, and uh, I really feel I have an obligation to be objective, impartial, and very exacting when it comes to those qualifications, which I will be in the questions that I ask and the standards I apply.
0: I'll ask you one last question, sir. You, you argued uh, uh, several times in front of the Supreme Court and you served as uh, Connecticut's Attorney General for, for many years. If the President came to you and said, um, Richard Blumenthal, I'd like to nominate you as a Supreme Court Justice, what would you say to him?
3: I would say, Mr. President, uh, I'm very honored. Uh, I am a candidate, uh, not officially, but I love the job I have now and I'm hoping to continue in the United States Senate. I think that his asking me is something that I'd have to consider out of respect for him. But certainly I have no expectation it will happen, and I hope that, uh, that I will continue in the job that I have now because I love doing it. I love listening to the people of Connecticut and using whatever my own qualities are to help and serve them and fight for them here in Washington
0: what's the next time frame in all this uh, senator i mean if we if we don't hear pretty soon that we're going to be allowed to look at the judiciary committee level at a at a nominee i mean what happens what are you hoping for as far as a time frame next
3: i'm hoping the president will submit a nominee sometime in the next few weeks maybe sooner but i think he should move expeditiously because time is passing and every day that We have no nominee. We're a day closer to the end of this term.
0: Richard Blumenthal is Connecticut's senior senator, and he serves on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Always good to talk with you, Senator. Thanks for joining
3: us. Thank you. Great to talk to you.
0: When we come back, former Black Panther Jamal Joseph shares his memories of Butch Lewis, a longtime activist and founder of the Black Panther chapter here in Hartford. Lewis's life and career are being honored this week in a special community conversation at the Hartford Public Library. We'll find out more coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, after Super Tuesday, Connecticut might have a better sense of whether or not its primary results will have any impact at all on the presidential race. Coming up, our weekly news roundtable will check back in to discuss the election and maybe play an election-related card game. Hope you can join us. Tomorrow evening, the Hartford Public Library puts on a special community conversation honoring Hartford resident and former Black Panther leader Butch Lewis. Lewis passed away last year at the age of 71. Now, friends and family are coming together to commemorate his life, including our next guest, Jamal Joseph. Joseph is a writer, producer, and educator. He's also author of Panther Baby, A Life of Rebellion and Reinvention. He joins us by phone today from New York City. Jamal Joseph, welcome to where we live.
2: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Tell me how you knew Butch Lewis, the founder of the Black Panther chapter here in Hartford.
2: I met Butch uh, as a young panther. I joined the Black Panther Party in uh, 1968 when I was 15 years old and was arrested uh, a few months later as part of a case known as the New York Panther 21 case. And about the time that I was uh, in prison, I was away for nine months, Butch founded the Hartford chapter. And so I met him when I came out and was a young Spokesman for the Panther 21. I was released on bail a couple of days after Afeni Shakur, and so we we first met him uh, when they would come to New York to support the Panther 21, and when we would visit Hartford, and New Haven, and Bridgeport, which were the uh, the three uh, cities in Connecticut that had Black Panther chapters.
0: Why do you think it's so important to to honor this man and, and remember his life and his work?
2: Well, he was tireless in his efforts to make the community better, and he was really guided by by what I call the invisible light of the Black Panther Party. People think of the Panthers and... They think of the Black Panther 10-point program, and they should. Uh, They think of the Panthers standing up to police brutality and in some cities patrolling the police with guns where those guns were legals, and and in other cities just with cameras and walkie-talkies, and they should. People remember the the Panther free breakfast program for children uh, where with no money and... No grants. We figured out. You know, we so recognized the need and fed, and fed kids, and they should. And, and Butch was was key in all of those efforts in Hartford and throughout Connecticut. But the guiding light that I'm talking about is this idea of service. If you ask any Panther what we were taught to believe in, above all other things, they will say we were taught to have an undying love for the people and to serve the people, mind, body, and soul. And he epitomized that in his life.
0: You've touched on some of this already, but given the the 50th anniversary of the formation of the Black Panther Party, maybe you could talk for a moment about some of the the misconceptions you see in the way uh, the the Panthers are remembered today.
2: Well, a a close look at what people's perception of the Black Panther Party is is militant, angry black men with guns who hated white people, Um, and who were violent. And upon close examination of what the Panthers were about, you will find out that none of those things are true. But I remember as as a kid, 15 years old, being enraged that Dr. King had been killed by a white guy, going with some friends to find a Panther office in New York, and believing that the Panthers would put us to some kind of test to prove that we were loyal, and that test involved finding a white guy, if not a cop, and offing them, offing the pig, as we used to say. So I went to the Panther office, and I'm sitting in the back, and and the person up front is uh, doing a uh, community class, what we call a political education class about the uh, the 10-point program, which talks about housing and education and, you know, and into police brutality, and I jump up as he's talking about point number five, which is about education, and I said, choose me, brother, all me. I kill a white dude right now. The office gets quiet. He calls me up to the front. And uh, he reaches down in a desk drawer. My heart is pounding in anticipation of this big gun with a Panther logo that I thought he was going to give me. And he hands me a stack of books and uh, Malcolm X and Franz Fanon and Lerone Bennett Jr. Before the Mayflower and I Solo and Ice. And I said, "Excuse me, brother. I thought you were going to arm me." And he said, "Yes, young brother. I just did." He said, "And by the way, if all of the cops were black." And white people were being brutalized and shot down. And all of the businesses that are ripping off the community were owned by black people. And the people being exploited were white people. And the government was in control of blacks. And the jails were filled with white people. And white people were being oppressed and black people on top. Would that make things correct? And I I said, no, brother, it seems like we'll still be wrong. And he said, that's right, young brother. This is a class struggle for human rights, not just a race struggle for civil rights. Mm. So the idea of solidarity that the Panthers talked about power to the people, and that meant power to all people, the idea of service to the community, and the idea that the guns that people associate with the Panthers were for the purpose of self-defense. And, in fact, your day in the Black Panther Party, you probably saw a gun once or twice a week if you were on guard duty, and the rest of the time it was the breakfast program, helping tenants, organizing the community, organizing students, and doing that community work.
0: I love the construction you just used in talking about a class struggle for civil rights, because clearly at at the time when you were 15, you were joining the Black Panther Party. Um, It was part of a civil rights movement in America. As we fast forward now to today, so much in terms of the civil rights that you were fighting for have been achieved, but there are still so many racial inequities, and many people who, who look at this closely Jamal, say it is about race it 's not about class anymore How do you reconcile some of these things i mean has has well, I, I guess I'm just wondering if you can comment on that
2: actually, what I learned again that first day in the Panthers is that it 's not just civil rights it 's human rights and when you talk about human rights you you broaden the conversation to include all people in a similar situation, and that 's where real unity comes from mm. um we 're not just talking about then the black people who are on public assistance and food stamps, but they are outnumbered, you know, eight to one by poor white people in this country, you know, who are on food stamps and public housing and, you know, there's drug epidemics in those communities. And so what the Panthers did is begin to talk about how people could organize around what they have in common. And what most people have in common then and have in common now is that there is a system that is, taking food from the mouths of people, denying folks health care, denying folks housing, education, in the name of profit. Slavery was a business. The war in Vietnam was a a business. The invasions and incursions we do in other countries is is, is a business. Police occupying the community like a military force, is a business. They are there to protect property in the interests of, of business folks. When you start to have that conversation and people go, it's not just black and white and I don't have to hate you because of the color of your skin, because keep in mind this kind of divide happens not only between working class and poor white people and black people, folks in control will use this to divide the black and Latino community or the or, or the black and the Jewish community. And so at a time when anybody begins to talk about real human rights and class struggle, when Dr. King really began to talk about that, that's when he was killed. He was organizing black and white sanitation workers in Memphis and in Chicago. When Malcolm X came back from Mecca and not only talked about working with white people but started talking about this idea of the war in Vietnam being a war of capitalist exploitation and everybody working together, that's when he was killed. And when the Panthers said all power to the people, um, and that meant that folks could work together to change the system because everybody was being exploited, that's something that will get you attacked the way the Panthers were with counterintelligence programs and, and by the local police and still get you beat down today because even in, in – in, within progressive movements today, we're not having enough of conversation about all power to all the people. Mm.
0: And I guess the, the point I was I was making with that the question, though, is that a poor white person in America today and a poor black person in America today face many of the same struggles. But it it's undeniable, unfortunately, that any black person in America today faces other problems having to do specifically with race that that White poor person does not, and that's something that that never really got fixed. Fifty years on, if, if you take my yeah, point, that's yeah, that's
2: absolutely true. I mean that that is, you know, the the double whammy, so to speak, to be black and poor in America. Either one is 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 uh, is a mark against you. To be both is is a, like an unforgivable sin in terms of, you know, how the system would treat you. And it is why the prison population has you know more than quadrupled. Uh, in 25 years from about a half a million people to over 2 million people. Most of those black and brown bodies, you know, there are more black men in prison today than there were in chains at the height of slavery in 1850. Um, and, yeah, you're more likely if you are a black man walking in your community with a hoodie to be shot down than a white guy walking with a hoodie. So th- this is definitely um, something that in in some ways has not changed and in some cases gotten worse. The difference is that, uh, you know, the Panthers would patrol and, you know, bring focus and attention to police brutality and what the police were doing um, because, you know, they would be a few feet away. People from the community would come and they'd see the police stop. They'd see the Panthers interacting. Now everyone has a has a video camera in their pocket, and so incidents are being captured and recorded But as we say in the black community, it's kind of the same old same old. We've been used to this kind of treatment at the hands of hostile cops, you know, for a hundred years, you know, since, you know, since the the so-called end of slavery. But it's important that people rally around their humanity. The reason I keep coming back to the idea of class struggle is that the Panthers, uh, when we were arrested, when we were, um, uh, when officers were raided, there were people of conscience from all communities who came down to support to those trials. There were people who came and took what was happening to the Black Panther Party, uh, that information, back to their organizations, back to their schools, back to their communities. And by the same token, there were things that we learned when we talked to people who were protesting the war or people from the women's movement or people from the gay liberation movement that we brought back to our communities to talk about so that we understood what solidarity was and we understood what a united front and fighting on many fronts are. And that's what's really going to bring the change. Again, the, your way into the movement may be Black Lives Matters, it may be police brutality and mass incarceration. But when you understand that immigration is an issue that we have to care about as well, that economic inequality is connected. We have to care about it as well. This is when you build a mass progressive movement.
0: Do you see an extension of the Black Panther Party movement in the Black Lives Matter movement?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that it, it is exciting and encouraging what Black Lives Matter is doing. And the idea that it is being, uh, first of all, led by young activists, which is important. In the Panthers, we were young. You know, uh, we were in our teens, in our early 20s. And that same had been true of the civil rights movement, that, you know, people forget that Dr. King was was all of 26 years old when he started to to lead the bus boycott and then became the face of, of, of the civil rights movement. But there were many young leaders around him who were young. And so that the Black Lives Matter leadership is young and that they are involving people not only... From you know black students and young black professionals, but getting grassroots folks involved. This is very very encouraging, and that and that and that uh, uh, part of the success of the movement can be seen by the fact that Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton use the term Black Lives Matters and are using mass incarceration as a debate point. You know. A little bit ironic that both, you know, that the uh, Clinton administration is when a lot of the laws that have led to mass incarceration and these uh, drug laws that, that have locked up and, uh, and destroyed so many lives. But it is the pressure from the streets, as it was with Dr. King, the civil rights movement, as it was with the Panthers and the Young Lords and other progressive folks, as it was with, uh, uh, with the anti-war movement. It is those pressure from the streets and from the from the universities uh, from grassroots folks that bring about change.
0: Uh, a last thing for you, and I'll say as much as, as we can say about political leaders, white political leaders adopting some of this language, and certainly the pressure coming from the streets, I think it, it takes things to another level when uh, the most popular people in American life, entertainers, get involved. And as someone who's uh, who's been involved in, in filmmaking and the arts for years, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the the talk following Beyonce's performance at the Super Bowl, her her video for formation, and the notion that um, maybe the most popular singer in the world may be able to to make a statement that so many others would like to, but, but don't have the megaphone for.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, mean, I was so excited and encouraged by Beyonce taking that stance and doing something that she probably understood would be controversial, but wanted to make a statement in her own way, I think, about the resurgence of of the movement the movement tends to you know tends to ebb and flow and she stands on the shoulders of some great folk that put it on the line put their careers on the line when they were young entertainers harry belafonte was was the biggest music star uh in the world at the time that he really stepped forward to put his his reputation his career his money and his life on the line you know if you read his book and look at his documentary in terms of what he sacrificed being involved in the movement and consistently you know involved for the last uh, 60 years uh Sydney Portier Davis uh Ruby D and so we've had activists artists throughout who have understood that um uh, as Paul Roberts said the artist is the gatekeepers of truth uh and so we have to really bear those uh, bear bear art like a call to arms and that position that artists have has to be i think safeguarded the way the African griot did when they understood that their job was to in the middle of the village under the baobao tree to play the drums, to do the dance, but also to talk about what was happening in the community and what the people had to do to preserve their legacy and to continue to be free.
0: Jamal Joseph is an Academy Award-nominated writer, producer, and educator. He is a professor at Columbia University School of the Arts. His book, published in 2012, is called Panther Baby, A Life of Rebellion and Reinvention. Uh, Jamal will be speaking as part of the Butch Lewis Community Conversation at Hartford Public Library Wednesday, March 2nd. His talk is followed by an interview with uh, Hartford's own Jamil Raglan, who wrote a piece for WNPR, In Memory of Butch Lewis last fall. It can still be found on our website. Of course, Jamal Raglan also contributes to our Radius project. Jamal Joseph, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for joining us here on Where
2: We Live. Thanks so much.
0: Our program is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. And our executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can continue this conversation online. Go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankoski, and this is Where We Live.